I'm Morgan Rector, host of the Human Monsters True Crime Podcast. Do you find life boring within the comfort zone? This is the right show for you. It will test your endurance. The offenders profiled are among the most inhumane. These people specialize in the unthinkable. Human Monsters. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Personally speaking, I can't remember the last time I actually saw someone hitchhiking. But when I ever do, my first thought, no matter what they look like, is that if I were to pick them up, there's a good chance they're going to kill me. I think that's because back in the day, people hitchhiked all the time. Just stick your hand out to a friendly passerby and they'll help you along your way. And it worked for a while, until it didn't. Because criminals realized that it was a really easy way to get their next target. Whether they chose to get picked up or do the picking up, prey was easy pickings. And ultimately, we all learned that it wasn't a good idea to hitchhike no matter what or where you were. I'm Ana Fitzgerald, and remember to check out the Scary Mysteries YouTube channel if you want to watch some awesomely edited videos to go along with these podcasts. We dug deep down and found some of these insane stories for you. Thanks for tuning in and hope you enjoy today's episode. Here are five terrifying hitchhiking crimes. Number five, double murder. The thing about most teenagers is that while they may have the energy and time to have fun, they are, however, most probably strapped with cash. For best friends, Michelle Riley and Gabrielle Jenke, they thought that going on a hitchhike would save them money for partying, a decision that obviously turned out fatal. On October 5, 1973, the two girls decided to hitchhike from their hometown in Brisbane to try and experience the famed nightlife at Surfer's Paradise in Koolangatta. They were last seen alive leaving Riley's home in Annerley, at about 5 in the afternoon. Then eight days later, two kids walking along the Pacific Highway at Ormu made the gruesome discovery at finding 19-year-old Jenke's body. It was discovered laying at the bottom of an embankment and decomposing at a fast rate. Investigators surmised that the victim had been thrown in the ditch. Police reports indicated that her head had been bashed in as evident from the fractured skull. Though she may have still been dressed, they found her without any underwear, 
which strongly suggested that she may have been sexually assaulted before being murdered. Then, 11 days later, while her death was still being probed, Riley's body was found in the bushland off of Camp Cal Road in Loganholm. Like her best friend, the 16-year-old incurred massive head trauma that caused her death, and her clothes were all disheveled, which it turned out meant she was raped as well. During the investigation, police believe that the Janky Riley murder case was carried out by one person, whom they described as a frenzied maniac, targeting unsuspecting hitchhikers along the road. Several leads were followed, but not a single arrest was made, and so for the past 49 years, no one knows who was responsible for the ghastly crime, and it remains unsolved to this day. Apparently, the two weren't the only ones to suffer and meet a violent death in this part of Queensland during the 1970s. In fact, they were the third and fourth in the string of incidents. A year after Janky and Riley, two nurses disappeared while hitchhiking after their car had broken down somewhere in Brisbane. The onslaught didn't end there either. On May 5, 1976, a Surfer's Paradise teenager was last seen trying to hitch a ride back home. Almost a month later, her battered body was found dumped beside the road. Like most of the victims, she had been brutally beaten on the head, so much so that it was difficult for medical examiners to reconstruct her face. As of now, it remains a mystery as to who could be this entity that preyed on these innocent hitchhikers. Number 4. Amelie Sokolis Confronted by the overwhelming wickedness and depravity of their perpetrator, most victims of sexual assault would freeze up in terror. It's an expected response, as what many psychologists would say, but such is not the case with Amelie Sakalis. In November of 2017, Sakalis entered Canada on a work permit. The woman, who originally came from Belgium, was traveling across the country, working at various jobs just to earn a living. And the last job she got was fruit picking in Penticton. Meanwhile, a man named Sean McKenzie left his home in Oliver, British Columbia, and was on his way to Vancouver where he intended to meet a colleague whom he worked with at a catering job in Burns Lake. With his trusty Chevy Astrovan, McKenzie left his hometown was on his way to the intended rendezvous point. Along the way, he saw Sokolis, who was hitchhiking along Karameos, a town next to Penticton. He offered her a ride, which the tourist supposedly accepted. It was August of 2018, and the weather was pleasant. The two must have gotten along for some time, but then for some unknown reasons, Mackenzie suddenly grabbed his knife, which was lying in the back seat, and he struck his passenger in the back of the head. But it was at this moment that the driver realized that he must have messed with the wrong person, because Sokolis then screamed and fought back against her attacker, like her whole life depended on it. She bit his finger so hard the man couldn't help but scream as well. Sadly though, the assailant eventually overpowered the victim, pulled her onto the back of that van, and bound her hands with electrical tape. Court affidavit stated that, at this point, the man began to remove her clothes and sexually assault her. 
Afterwards, Mackenzie drove his vehicle towards Boston Bar, a remote place in the area. While on the way, Sokolis managed to break free from her bonds. She took this moment to fight her kidnapper and now rapist. In the middle of the scuffle, the woman was able to grab the perpetrator's knife and attack him with it, but he was able to get it back. With the upper hand again, he was able to force her to the back of the van, where he once again bound Sokolis' hands and feet. Arriving at Boston Bar, Mackenzie then stabbed the hitchhiker in different parts of her body. The coroner's report later stated she had been stabbed 42 times. After the deed was done, the killer disposed of the body, along with the woman's possessions. Not knowing what to do, he called the police and told them that he was a victim of a crime. He said he killed his passenger out of self-defense, and he was arrested, but later released the following day. It wasn't long before authorities realized they made the wrong decision, and so on September 14th of that same year, authorities tracked down the suspect and arrested him again. This time, he confessed to the crime and provided the ghastly details. When asked, he said he didn't know why he murdered the woman. Even after he was sentenced to life in prison the following year, he still couldn't give an exact motive. Despite her tragic end, it couldn't be helped but to admire Sokolis for the courage she had shown in the midst of adversity. Number 3 unsolved disappearance of Tony Jones. They say that a journey is best experienced when shared. For the brothers, Tony and Tim Jones, their idea of adventure was for them to cross the country together. The Perth, Western Australia natives, however, thought that doing it in different ways would make it more exciting. Tony would be hitchhiking while his brother rode a bike. Their final destination... Mount Isa. The two set off on October 28, 1982, and along the way, the brothers would see to it to keep in touch not only with each other, but with their family as well. On November 3, 1982, Tony learned from his mother that Tim had already reached their destination. On that same day, the 20-year-old embarked on what would later turn out to be his final trip. He never made it to Mount Isa, and was never heard from ever again. Tony was supposedly only a few days away from the site, but it had been weeks since they had last heard from him. Worried and concerned now, the distraught mother reported to the police that her son was missing. An investigation was then launched, and despite the huge $250,000 reward, authorities still couldn't get a hint on the man's whereabouts. 20 years later, in 2002, an inquest ruled that Tony Jones had been murdered. However, authorities failed to make a single arrest or even officially cite a probable suspect to the crime. Over the years, there have been a few individuals who were considered persons of interest. In 1992, for example, police published a sketch of a person wanted for questioning in relation to the matter. He was the last person seen with Tony on the night of his disappearance and he allegedly offered to give him a lift to Charters Towers, which is a nearby landmark going to Mount Isa. The sketch reportedly matched a former Townsville policeman who was later known simply by the name of Stevenson. However, this certain Stevenson never made it to the interrogation as he died a year before the inquest was ever made. 
As the years rolled on, more and more interesting names were linked to the case. In October of 2011, a former inmate of Townsville Correctional Center said that in 2000, while he was still incarcerated there, a cellmate confessed to killing a bloke near Mount Isa. Prison records identified this suspect as Michael Lundis. He could have helped shed light on the long-running mystery had it not been for certain legalities that hindered an inquest. As such, in 2015, Lundis died, and the truth, whatever that was, perished along with him. Tony Jones' disappearance remains a mystery that is yet to be solved. As for now, everyone, especially his family, were left wondering what happened to him. Was he attacked by wild animals or murdered by a serial killer? Or did he succumb to the harsh sun-scorched plains of the Australian Far West? To this day, no one exactly knows, and it appears it will remain that way. Number 2. Jeannie Moore This tragedy began in the early morning of August 25, 1981. Jeannie Moore left her home near the Harlan Street on-ramp and she was westbound, headed for Interstate 70 in Denver, Colorado. The 18-year-old was on her way to work at a Teneco gas station at 13th Avenue and Wadsworth Boulevard in Lakewood. Since she didn't have a car, the young woman had to hitchhike the entire stretch from her house to her place of work. As she was about to arrive, an employee and a customer of that gas station saw a red car pulling over to the side of the road that Moore was walking along. They noticed her, talking to the driver, and from what they later said, the girl tried to enter the vehicle, a 1970 Ford LTD with a black vinyl top. The door had to be assisted for the girl to get inside, after which the two sped away from the site, and this would be the last time she was ever seen alive. Five days later, on August 30th, a group of hitchhikers stumbled upon a body of a woman in Genesee Park, south of I-70. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office conducted an investigation, and it was confirmed to be the girl who had gone missing less than a week ago. An autopsy then followed, and it was discovered that the victim died from multiple blows to the head. The medical examination, meanwhile, indicated that Moore was sexually assaulted before she was murdered. Considering the limitations of forensic technology at the time, there's nothing much that authorities could do with the pieces of evidence that they found at the scene. And so, the investigation in this case was on and off through the years, before it finally went ice cold. After what seemed to be decades following the incident, a new group of detectives decided to take a new look into the cold case. In 2008, they uploaded the DNA information to the Combined DNA Index System, CODIS, but after more than a couple of years, they still haven't found a match. The search then continues for the perpetrator, and investigators have never given up on putting a face behind the mysterious DNA profile. In May of 2019, forensic experts took another look at the evidence with the hope that they would get at least a familial match, and this time they used a genealogical DNA test. For what is now considered to be the first cold case murder solved in Colorado, authorities found a close match to a man named Donald Perea. 
At the time of the incident, Perillo was only 23 and was out on bail for another sexual assault case. Further tests were made and all the results said the same thing. He's 3.3 trillion times more likely to be the person behind this DNA profile. As per protocol, authorities would seek to obtain fresh specimens from the suspect to confirm their suspicion. They usually do it by getting discarded drinking straws or cups and then run the test to prove a match. Unfortunately though, Moore's family and the Jefferson County Police were no longer afforded with such opportunities because their person of interest was already long gone. As stated in reports, Perea died due to a health-related issue sometime in 2012. Their case would have gone down the drain had it not been for the help of the killer's own family members who cooperated with the police. They provided all the samples needed to strengthen the evidence. It may have come in late, but finally, authorities were able to declare one of Denver's coldest rape murder cases as solved and closed. Number 1. Trio Killing While most of the victims we featured in this episode were hitchhikers, this last story we have is something different. In a sense, that it was the hitchhiker who wreaked havoc, leaving a trail of bodies along his path. Gary Sampson was a man who often found himself at odds with the law. Because of this, the Abington Montgomery native became a drifter, moving from place to place for most of his adult life. But he must have grown weary of it, because in 2001 he called the FBI and he told them he wants to turn himself in for the series of bank robberies he committed in North Carolina. Weirdly enough, the Bureau ignored his report. When he realized that no one was coming for him, he decided to do something that would ultimately capture their attention. On July 24th of that same year, Philip McCloskey offered Samson a ride when he saw him hitchhiking in Weymouth, Massachusetts. Instead of being grateful, the passenger then forced the driver to go to Marshfield, where he made the 69-year-old retired plumber walk deep into the woods. He then tied him up and stabbed him 24 times. Three days later, Samson was once again traversing the highways in Plymouth when Jonathan Rizzo, a college student, saw him and picked him up. Like what he did with the elderly man, the hitchhiker forced the Good Samaritan to drive to Abington, there, he tied the young man up to a tree and stabbed him repeatedly. With the driver dead, the killer stole Rizzo's car and drove it to New Hampshire, where he found and broke into a vacation home. It was already July 30th when 59-year-old Robert Whitney showed up to his property to mow the lawn. A fight then ensued between Whitney and the illegal occupant. The latter ultimately won the scuffle against the former who was tied to a chair. For whatever came to his mind, Samson wound a rope around the victim's neck and strangled him to death. Like what happened to Rizzo, he stole the man's car and then fled to Vermont. And a day later, the vehicle was found abandoned. Samson was now back on the road again. Along the way, a man named William Gregory saw and offered him a ride. He could have suffered the same tragic fate had it not been for his courage to fight off the killer hitchhiker and escape from the moving car. The serial killer then eventually ended up at another vacation home in the area. 
He then called 911 and told authorities about the killing rampage. Vermont State troopers arrived shortly after, and there they arrested the 44-year-old murderer. Sampson was sentenced to death twice, the first being revoked for jury misconduct. But long before justice could be served to the survivors of his three victims, Sampson, who was now 62 years old, died due to high blood pressure and liver disease in December of 2021. So that's going to be it for our podcast today. Don't forget to rate us and share this content with your friends. For more true crime stories from us, please head over to the Everytown Podcast, where we tell some of the craziest cases and stories that have happened all around the country. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you in the next one.